students so this is for our Harlem Renaissance week and I'm going to start by giving you a bit of background information um, about Harlem which is where the Harlem Renaissance took place and Harlem which is actually where I live uh, currently maybe some of you as well but it was originally a Dutch village named after a city called Harlem, Harlem, that's H-A-A-R-L-E-M in the Netherlands. And of course we know that as a country in Europe that's full of these vibrant flowers, it has an interesting water irrigation system, vibrant gardens, lots of amazing art museums there. But the Dutch village that we know as present-day Harlem, that was formally organized in 1658, was part of a man named Peter Stuyvesant, his colony called the New Netherlands. So New Netherlands had this capital called New Amsterdam. And at some point, Stuyvesant, who was a, he was a director general, Dutch, he started this in um, 1647, eventually, it's ceded to the English and renamed New York. And that's when we get Harlem, a neighborhood in this colony, New York. And it really started out as a predominantly white neighborhood, which is significant because later it becomes the most affluent black neighborhood in the United States at the time. And it was mostly inhabited by Jewish and Italians in the 18th century. But when but when the 20th century brought on the Great Migration, so this is when Black Americans traveled north from the south to settle, Harlem became the most affluent Black neighborhood in, in the United States at this time. And the American South, which normally was previously had been ranking in with 90% of the total population of Black Americans, it went down to 50% after the Great Migration. So this gives you some idea of how many, just how many people were migrating to start over, start anew, and start with the freedom that they did have, not, not to say that they still didn't experience prejudice and racism, but the um, freedom from enslavement in the North. And so Harlem being this coveted address in the 1920s and then even uh, still growing in the 1930s became, it was, it was then synonymous with not only the great migration to the North where Black Americans could live freely, but also it was this place of outpouring creativity and production in all these different artistic mediums. There's no single style or medium that defines the Harlem Renaissance. 
So as I've pointed out, it's visual art, music, literature, theater, dance, but there's also different styles that occur within each of those artistic mediums. And so there's a lot of variety in the art that we're hearing and looking at, but there's one common thread and that's really to celebrate black culture and identity. And often artists were combining elements of African art with contemporary themes, contemporary to uh, the 1920s and 30s. And this creates this link that dignifies and expands the history of the African-American experience so that it can counter the prejudice and also derogatory themes that dominate popular culture or white culture, um, this Euro-American canon of art history even. And what happens is there is a lot of joy, there is a lot of celebration, but it's also important to understand that these artists that come before, during, and after are still experiencing racism and so their careers are thus hampered by that. And many of the members of the Harlem Renaissance chose to work outside of the United States in part because of this. So some gathered in Paris before returning to New York and they found opportunities abroad for younger um, African-American artists. And so so that's um, kind of a, makes it larger than Harlem itself. I mean, we see artists in other parts of the United States as well. Today, we're really focusing on artists in Harlem and living in Harlem. But we are also going to look at artists, actually a few women artists that also experienced racism in for example, in Paris, and we'll talk a bit about that. Um, so it's not, you know, my intention is not to paint this rainbow over the movement as if there was no struggle um, and, and racism that was still going on. The significance about it is that even with their history and lineage of enslavement and racism, there's still this resistance and this rebellion to, to not let that um, prevent them or paralyze them in their creative processes, and also building community in those creative processes and intellectual as, as well. I want to introduce a, an artist named Augusta Savage. She's an American sculptress. She was born in Florida near Jacksonville in 1892. And she actually started to create art as a child using the natural clay that she found around her house and in her hometown. And eventually she makes a name for herself as a sculptor um, in the Harlem Renaissance, which is of course why we're talking about her today. But just in terms of her getting there, she was very determined to become a sculptress and 
So she thought, well, I can't really, she didn't have a lot of success, though she did try to get work commissioned in Florida. No luck. Moves to New York in 1921 with no money. And as a side gig, she's, well, not a side gig, I guess it's more her main gig, but hoping that it is just a side gig at some point in her life. She's being a apartment caretaker for people, and also attending art classes at Cooper Union. And she finishes her um, art courses over the span of three years or so. And she's producing a lot of work and picks up a few commissions. So the New York Public Library commissions her to produce a bust of W.E.B. Du Bois. And this is the first in a series of leading black figures. She also does one of Marcus Garvey, um, who's a black nationalist. And she's also, in addition, is attending meetings where black artists, writers, activists are talking together about uh, philosophy and art and how this can all be a contributor to history and, and this resistance, this force of Black people taking their voices as their own and putting them into culture and imbuing their own culture. Um, so Augusta Savage herself becomes quite a formidable activist and she is really impacted by these people that she's meeting and connecting with and building community with, too. With that said, in 1923, she is, she's visiting Paris. She's um, applying to be in this program, uh, something, you know, that drove her to do art abroad. So it's something within her artistic career. She's thinking, I'm going to check out, um, Paris, and they end up actually denying her because she is black, which she then confronts them about and makes history in doing so because it's the first black woman to defy the art world publicly in this way. Um, so that's an unfortunate circumstance and obviously has an effect on her, but she continues to sculpt she has, she's not making a ton of money. She's certainly not really doing this as a living. She's still doing other work outside of her art. Um, but she does make more um, busts about people that she meets in Harlem. So she's back in New York making more busts. And the common thread here, again, as I've stated before with the Harlem Renaissance, is portraying the beauty of Black people. And this is coming at a moment when forms of racist caricatures and derogatory visuals, but also um, language was quote unquote, not politically incorrect, or it was socially acceptable and encouraged. So this is a an interruption in in that and um, she 
ends up progressing in her career and becomes more successful. Um, she takes an interest in African art specifically and is even more immersed later in the 30s in the Harlem artistic and political sphere. Um, she created the Studio Arts and Crafts and the Harlem Art Workshop. And what I wanted to point out is this commission that she also does for the New York Fair. So it goes, some people have referred to it as the harp. That's what I've always known it as, but it's also, I believe, titled every, I'm sorry, lift every voice and sing. And it is this gigantic sculpture. Maybe not gigantic, but it's large. And it was inspired by um, the words of a poem by James Johnson titled every, Lift Every Voice and Sing. And this work is 16 feet tall. But what she does is reinterprets the harp, the musical instrument, and puts places 12 singing black youths in various lengths as the strings. So if you look at the image along with me here, you can see. And the harp sounding board is transformed into an arm and a hand. And in the front, you can see that there's a kneeling man who is offering music in his hands. So there's this emotive tone of, of sharing this gift to whoever comes by and sees it, so whoever the spectator is. And it's meant to be outdoors, it's meant to be seen, it's meant to be walked around. Um, and unfortunately though, and this is kind of interesting to think about in terms of the colonial statues that have been taken down um, intentionally, um, by protesters in the last, I mean, this has been happening for a few years now, but more people I think have been talking about it this year in light of George Floyd. But in this case, she is, here she is, uh, a black woman in New York and in, in the late 1930s, she's unable to pay for the transport of her work. So she was actually forced to destroy it. And so unfortunately, this work doesn't exist. There's a small model of it, I believe, at the Schoenberg Center. That's it. We don't have any of them, this photograph. Um, we don't have any trace of this work because of the economic instability and just transporting it, um, which when I think about the uh, monstrosities that some wealthier artists are making today, and what uh, states commission in terms of what they'd like to see around their neighborhoods. Sometimes we see really interesting things. I mean, there's a Harriet Tubman sculpture in uh, Harlem by Morningside Park, but something like this harp um, is unfortunately forgotten about because we don't even have it anymore given the socioeconomic constraints of of her as a, as a black female artist. So she's 
got her artistic career, but she's also fighting for civil rights. She's she's um, really spinning the two of those together. And until today, she is a legend for Harlem's history. But I wanted to just bring her to our attention here in uh, a very careful but also exciting way, having her start us off. And give yourself a moment to look at the images on the website that I've posted, especially the harp. Um, there's also an image of her with some of her work. And um, think about the texture, think about the color. I know that one of them is a black and white photo, but imagine the color, imagine what it feels like if it was uh, like haptically, if you were touching it. And also I want you to think about works that are visual and sometimes two-dimensional. This time we have three-dimensional, but think about, is it, does it have any kind of sound? Is there any Thing musical about it? Is there anything phonic? Do we hear any voices, um, whispers, screams? I've included another work by a woman artist from the Harlem Renaissance. Her name is Selma Burke. It's the sculpture of a woman and child from 1950. And what was striking to me about it was how nurturing it was, how, uh, um, how this embrace with woman and child is a private moment between child and mother, but it's also feels socially significant as a piece coming out of a Harlem Renaissance movement that where its main aim is to reassert and take um, autonomy over black voices, black culture and black arts and how, and black people portraying themselves rather than being portrayed in this racist, um, derogatory caricature way, or just a very stereo, you know, even if it's not blatant in its racism, explicit in its racism, um, there's still a tendency in movements like Orientalism, Romanticism, coming out of Europe and also the United States, that are white people or um, uh, Euro-American artists who are not Black that are portraying Black people and assuming what their experiences are. So it was, it felt um, important to share this work with you and to share this sculptor with you. And so who is she, this Selma Burke? So she is sensitized to African art from an early age, meaning she is beginning her art career rather early. She's very apt to figure this out. She's like, okay, I want to be a part of the art world. Um, I want to do it from an African-American perspective. And she quits her job as a housekeeper in 1935 and goes to Sarah Lawrence College. 
and she meets her future husband there, who's an author, Claude McKay. Um, and the two of them, both sharing this Black heritage, are contributing to the spread of the Harlem Renaissance movement, making it even wider than it is in Harlem and in New York. And she invests in the Harlem Community Arts Center and the Harlem Artists Guild, which you'll remember from August Savage. And she taught under the direction of Augusta Savage and was able to participate in the Salon of Contemporary Negro Art. And similar as well to Savage, she in 1938 goes to Europe to study the human figure. And so what we're seeing here in this 1950 work is after that. And she's studying with the sculptor Aristide Maillol, who has a very famous work called The Mediterranean. Um, and his stylistic influence is very crucial to her work. I'll actually include The Mediterranean, the work by Aristide Maillol as well, so you can see the similarities and differences between the two and maybe pick up on some of her influences. Elizabeth Catlett was born in 1915. She died recently, well, I guess now that's eight years ago in 2012. And she was a black American and later became a Mexican graphic artist and sculptor. And she was known for her depictions of the black experience in the 20th century, but she also focused on the experience of women specifically black women. And there are many quotes from her that she shared in interviews and books about how she can't really imagine pursuing the career of art without being fully woman, fully black, and fully human. That's not a direct quote, but it's derived. And has concerns about it being a field, not necessarily the only field, but a field where white men are most welcomed. So, of course, now that we've been this far in the course, you can um, realize that the canon is very white and it is very male. And so for someone like Elizabeth Catlett to step in and have the self-assurity to go forth with her artistic career, is really impressive and it paid off um clearly so it was it was difficult though for a black woman to to pursue this career as a working artist not just a hobby or a side gig and she devoted much of her career to teaching as well teaching art so um she goes to mexico city because she received a fellowship and she actually became the head of the sculpture department at the school, the National School of Plastic Arts. That's the, the sculpture segment. And her work is, it varies. I've included one of her prints, um, one of her woodcuts, but she's using a mixture of 
abstract, abstract figures, abstract landscapes, and is influenced by Mexican art, naive art, and also African art. And this being a formalist, so formalistic aspect to how her work appears, but really the main purpose of her work, and perhaps this comes from her role as a teacher as well, is that it is to convey a social message and to tell a story rather than just purely a visual formalist expression. She's excluded from Carnegie Mellon University because she's black and she studies, eventually studies with Louis Mailou Jones, who we're going to talk about next. And then she studies at the University of Iowa with Grant Wood, who's an American regionalist painter. And he is really known for his painting American Gothic, which you might have heard of. If not, a quick Google search will bring you there. And for her, for her thesis at the University of Iowa, she created Mother and Child in 1939. And I think that it is interesting, and I'd like for you to compare this Mother and Child with our other Mother and Child sculpture. And she actually earned a prize for this work. But the, the clear and powerful cultural meaning behind a mother embracing her child was really well received. And keeping in mind too, in, in Elizabeth Catlett's impetus for this is really to show that the black community um, has these nuanced relationships and to show touch and intimacy was a radical act and it was also important um, for these artists to communicate that with the public or, or people looking at their work. Um, so she's really got a lively career and marries Charles White who's a major figure in the social realism movement. She's introduced to Cubism and this is where we get her more abstract uh, fragmented figures that we see in her lithographs. And she creates in 1946 the Negro Woman, and this is her series of lithographs that I've included in our images. And it includes a work called I Helped Hundreds to Freedom, which is a representation of the quote, Black People's Moses. There's one of Harriet Tubman. and um, she's powerfully leading slaves to freedom, as she historically did. And these lithographs inaugurate a whole series of works that pay tribute to the courage and beauty. The last thing I'll mention is that despite her really successful career, she was criticized by the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City and because of her involvement in activism, she was arrested at a railway strike at some point, I think in, in, 19, in the 1940s, and she had relations with members of the Communist and Socialist Party. 
So she abandons American citizenship and just says, whatever, I'm going to become a Mexican citizen and is declared undesirable in the United States. But to this day, now, and we honor her here, she's nicknamed the mother of the black art movement. And because of the organization of her friends and comrades, she actually obtains a special visa authorizing her to return to the United States and is included and has a retrospective of her work that was organized by the Studio Museum in Harlem. I have a few videos on here with Jacob Lawrence speaking about his migration series, but I also wanted to give you some background on who he is. He was an artist of the Harlem Renaissance. His parents were free slaves. Uh, they're from the South, and they moved to Harlem during the Great Migration. So this is a as he describes, it's a very personal topic to him, but he's also just, he knows that experience. He was around it his entire upbringing. And he believed his paintings were a representation of himself and his community. And he, so that community that he grew up around was the Harlem Renaissance and his uh, mentor who's an artist, Charles Alston, and the leading philosopher of the Harlem Renaissance, um, Alan Leroy Locke. And he was a writer, philosopher, and patron of the arts. And Lawrence witnessed the creation of Alston's murals um, when he was at the Harlem Hospital. And it was consistent with his with Alston's interest in showing heroic African-American figures and also Locke's philosophy of making connections between African-American imagery and contemporary African-American experience. So this is where Jacob Lawrence is getting his inspiration from. And the people of Harlem and its rich heritage were constant sources of inspiration for him. Um, you know, the community experience and all of its ups and downs. These are all forged by the Great Migration, the Harlem Renaissance, and the Depression era. That we still have a lot of struggle. It's not as if there is no struggle, as I mentioned before. And he was also interested... Um, so, excuse me, influenced by comic strips and flip books, as well as old master renaissance paintings and literature. And so he's really using a lot of different sources of inspiration for his form and his, his content. And he's playing, creating a playful relationship between the two and all of his various groupings of inspiration. And he carefully uses flat shapes as you can see in the first panel of the migration series, but also I encourage you to take a look at the website and that I've provided and look at the entire series. Uh, Cause it's kind of like a story. He's, he's teaching his spectator and his audience about the great migration and what that meant for black history and culture in this country. And he's creating a sense of 
pattern and rhythm that mimics movement, mimics the flow of travel. And the limited color palette and Lawrence's technique of applying colors one at a time enables him to keep the panels consistent and bring the work together as a whole so that it has this continuity and flow and movement to it as well. Also important to mention, part of this movement, this rhythm, this is where I want us to be inspired and also challenge our thinking around looking at visual works and also putting them alongside the poetry of other artists and poets in the Harlem Renaissance, other writers, and see if that, you know, read it out loud to yourself, the poems that I've provided, while you're looking at Lawrence's paintings, or listen to Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald's Take the A-Train, and think about how maybe the visual works themselves also resonate sound, also have some music coming forth from them. And that kind of immerses us even in this virtual world, or at least we can try to be very imaginative and be immersed in this time, this rich time um, that was the Harlem Renaissance. Moving to Lois Melu Jones. She's an American painter. She's an African American painter, but also had spent some time in Paris. And she was encouraged by the African American sculptor Meta Warwick Fuller and enrolled in the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And this is a historical moment. She becomes the first. African-American to graduate from that school in Boston. And she has, she shows a great talent for art and sculpture at a young age in painting. And she holds her first solo exhibition when she's 18. Of course, the racial, the racial bias is a factor and held her back from her career, even though she had all this very obvious talent. But she was finally recruited to work at Howard University, and this university becomes part of the birthplace of the Harlem Renaissance. So that worked out well for her career, and she became one of the school's best professors and spent the year, this kind of gave her a platform, allowed her to spend a year, uh, 1937, in Paris at the Académie Julien, and she adopted outdoor painting, or en plein air, which comes from Impressionism and post-Impressionism, post as you'll remember, because we've gone over that, that lecture. And she was working with the painter Emile Bernard, and who's post-Impressionist, and paints these beautiful Parisian street scenes in a very Impressionist style. She actually exhibited at the Salon des Indépendants. And so, so we have a lot of this Impressionist 
post-impressionist work. But what I was hoping to draw our attention to is this uh, work that she makes after she returns to New York. And she chooses to focus her work on the everyday lives of Black Americans. And this painting she did called Mob Victim uh, Meditation in 1944 shows a man who is about to be lynched. And we can see some of the loose brushstroke that she's practicing and enjoying with Impressionist paintings and landscapes and attributes them to a figure which makes this violent act that is about to happen um, have this interesting melancholic tone. It's off-putting, but it's also very visually pleasant. So they have this, this juxtaposition in her work is really unique. The last artist that we're looking at today is photographer James Vandersee, and he was born in Lenox, Massachusetts in 1886, and he was an instrumental figure in documenting the Harlem Renaissance during the 20s and 30s with his photographs, and he was experimenting with photography in his lifetime as early as 1900, and began his career as a darkroom assistant in 1913. And what I love and admire about James van der Zee is how he took his experience in the darkroom to learn how images were processed and also take note that photographing figures with darker skin tones actually presented a challenge to some, to some photographers that didn't understand the variance of tone in darker skin. And so he set out to really play and indulge in the wide variety of rich tones in darker skin and in the darkroom process made sure not to, which photographers like Robert Maplethorpe, I can show you a work where he's done this with uh, black male figures um, and that have, have been critiqued for this where they wash out uh, where Mablethorpe washes out the skin so that it looks a lot lighter. Um, and so James Van Der Zee is, is not doing this. He's, he's doing the opposite where he's bringing out the darker tones in his photographs. And he's often retouching his negatives and sometimes incorporating photo montage as well in his studio practice. You'll notice in some of the images of the nude and of the, the dancer, the woman sort of dressed up in that flapper, very 20s iconic outfit. He, he loved using and employing the painted backdrops to portray the beauty of each sitter. And he loved to use this plush parlor furniture and props, but it was all very carefully posed and manipulated through his own vision, his own narrative of how he would present these images. Um, and so looking at, looking at his images, it's relevant to the Harlem Renaissance because he is really widely capturing 
different people, different places, different avenues, clubs, billiard rooms where black culture is happening and taking place and doing it in a very sort of staged, as I said, way. So it's not candid, but the aim of it is to show how thriving and this positivity of this culture in this era, in this place, in the country, and to really celebrate that from the content of his photographs to the dark room itself and his his process in uh, retouching and um, playing with the chemicals, the different chemical reactions that a photograph has, you know, in a way it's very scientific, that bring out the darker tones in his images and that beautiful juxtaposition and contrast of light that occurs in something like the Harlem Billiard Room photograph where you see that light coming through the center diagonal of the photograph um, playing against the shadows of the work as well. And that was something that he was so brilliant at. Um, so I invite you to look at the photographs here, but also feel free. He has so many published online um, to explore on your own as well.